Hey everyone, we want to let you know that the audio quality for this episode is a, a little rough in some places, but the content uh, is just so good and we really hope that you'll enjoy it. And with that, here's our episode with Yusuf Alhuri. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 140. In this episode, we're talking about the history of Zionism and the Nakba with Yusuf Alhuri. Yusuf Alhuri is originally from Gaza and now lives in Bethlehem, Palestine, where he is a lecturer of biblical studies and mission at Bethlehem Bible College. And he is also currently working on his doctorate in contextual interpretation at the Free University of Amsterdam. Team members on this episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. Brandon Hurlburt. So it was great to speak with Yusuf uh, again. I, I first met him uh, when I visited the Holy Land back in May for a conference called Christ at the Checkpoint. And Yusuf was one of the uh, conference organizers and speakers. And it was there that I you know, first get, got to know Yusuf, but also really got to experience firsthand what life is like for Palestinians living in occupied territory, living in the West Bank. Uh, we got to you know, visit refugee camps. We got to see, you know, just the living conditions there. We visited Palestinians whose homes had been demolished by the IDF and the state. And it was an incredible trip. But the thing that, you know, stuck with me was that we need to have these conversations that many people have never, ever, ever encountered a Palestinian, much less a Palestinian Christian. And even even fewer have encountered a Palestinian Christian who writes and talks about theology. And I think this conversation, this series that we're starting uh, with this episode is just is going to be really important, really impactful uh, for for you, our listeners. So what were some of your thoughts about the uh, conversation we had with Yusuf Al-Khuri? In this episode, Yusuf is going to talk about the emergence of Zionism, the uh, ideology that led up to uh, modern, modern Zionism. Uh, the events leading up to 1948, what happened, and a little bit after that. But my favorite part about this episode was the stories that Yusuf is going to tell about the Palestinian experience of occupation and the devastating effects that it's had on everyone from youth to the elderly. So I think that's really important for uh, us to listen to and to hear. And a lot of it is quite difficult and troubling to listen to, but uh, the stories that he tells are very powerful and moving and uh, definitely worth um, thinking on. Yeah, I really love this conversation with Yusuf. I thought he gave us a lot of really helpful historical insights about Zionism and the Nakba and a lot of just tragic personal and familial stories uh, about his experiences. And it just really hits home the importance of developing empathy by listening to somebody else tell their story of what, of what they have experienced. And even if perhaps we might have different political persuasions that might make us think a little differently about the issue of Israel and Palestine, just the importance of, of listening to someone's story in humility. I appreciate it. Yusuf's ability to take such a complex historical narrative of Zionism and really have flesh to it, uh, to really have an understanding that the impact uh, of this division and tension has led to generations 
uh, of individuals not being able to return back to their home country. That allows us to get a picture of the fact that we must keep in mind the history of Israel, uh, the understanding of the complex structures that have disabled the ability to be able to um, come back to one's homeland and to be able uh, to actually fulfill and live out uh, the, the history uh, of a nation. Uh, and we just wanted to say that this is not supposed to be a way of watering down or uh, giving the kind of other side of our series on anti-Judaism. Uh, we had a series on uh, anti-Judaism. Uh, it was a number of episodes. Uh, we stand by um, all those episodes and we stand against uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism uh, in all of its various forms. Uh, and we also wanted to do this separate series, not related to that series, obviously, as uh, some, an issue that we wanted to cover, an issue that we're interested in, an issue that many of us have thought about and want to learn more about. Uh, so we just wanted to say that we do not think it's fair if people will respond to this as an anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish move. Uh, we think it's important to critique Zionism and the state of Israel where it deserves to be critiqued, uh, where it deserves to be objected to. Uh, and we think it's really important for um, oppressed peoples to theologize and to have those theologies heard when they're in situations of oppression. So uh, we think it's very important to promote Palestinian voices, Palestinian theological voices who are thinking critically, carefully, and constructively um, about their experience of occupation. But in no way, again, did we want this to be the kind of the other side of the coin of anti-Semitism. Uh, it's not. These are different conversations. They're obviously related conversations, but we stand by both everything we said against anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism in that series. Uh, and we also stand by the fact that we are willing to uh, critique the state of Israel, critique Zionism and things related to it, where it deserves to be critique and where critique deserves to be heard and seriously considered. So uh, we hope that you will uh, really learn a lot from this series. Um, there will probably be a lot of uh, voices and concepts and histories uh, and events that you uh, haven't heard about, or which you have heard about, maybe from um, a certain perspective, a different perspective uh, than the ones that you're going to hear. Uh, so we just encourage you all uh, to really approach this with an open mind uh, and a humble heart, uh, which is willing to listen. So, and with that, we'll kick off the series. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really does help. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Yusuf Alcourt. Well, thank you so much, Yusuf, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. I think as we kick off this series, a lot of our listeners might uh, have never even known that there were Palestinian Christians, and they are only uh, aware of a, a certain narrative of what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Um, and again, the, you know, the issues are very complex, and there's a lot of moving parts, and there's a lot of uh, dates and historic treaties and borders drawn along them, and you know, maybe they want to know uh, where to begin. They want to listen to Palestinian voices. 
Uh, but I think that many people, when they think of this conflict, they start the narrative. They start their inquiry at 1948 with the creation of the state of Israel. And in doing so, they miss out on a lot of the kind of crucial history, uh, especially the rise of Zionism before then, um, and the role that European powers had in shaping this current crisis. So Yusuf, I don't know if you could just share a little bit about where should we begin this story? Thank you so much, Brandon. Excellent question. Um, I think it's important to be aware of what's happened in 1948. Uh, but the roots, the ideology of the Zionist colonialism in Palestine begin actually much earlier. And in fact, begin with the Christians, not with Zionists. Uh, so Christian Zionism predates Jewish Zionism. And here to be clear, the simplest way to define what's a Christian Zionist or what I prefer actually to call a Zionist Christian, Christians who are committed to Zionist ideology based on biblical, uh, certain biblical interpretation. Okay? And the gap here is confusing modern state of Israel, which is a colonial, settler colonial state, with Israel of the Old Testament. You know, bridging 3,000 years of history to produce or reinvent a new history. And that, I think, is the major issue. It began, in fact, with uh, after the Reformation, when we start seeing more theologians writing about the return of the Jews to their homeland in order for the second return of Jesus to happen faster, okay? Um, that was actually active in uh, the European uh, church for uh, numbers of years, but we can detect um, a turning point in history when someone like Lord Chapsbury, who was a prominent Christian figure in uh, Britain in the 1800s, once said, and he's, by the way, the president of London Society for Promoting Christianity Among Jews. He once said, there is a country, and here I'm quoting him, there is a country without a nation, and God now, in his wisdom and mercy, directs us to a nation without a country, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he wrote that in 1854. Zangwill said that there is a land without people for people without land. So the slogan that the Christian invented later was adopted by Jewish Zionists. And by the way, those Jewish Zionists weren't uh, per se committed to Judaism. They were very, uh, let's say, secular Jews. And one joke that Palestinians usually say that Theodor Herzl, who wasn't a committed Jew, believed that God promised them the land, even though he doesn't believe in God. So that's the sarcasm of the Zionist movement. If we can take it also a little uh, more in the historical background, Lord Shaftesbury's idea even became more crystallized with a new theology that was born in uh, Ireland and later, of course, in England, moving to the North America by uh, Jonathan Darby, which became known as dispensationalism, believing that God has seven dispensations and the church and Israel God has two different plans for Israel and the church. So the interesting point of history with the rising of dispensationalism 
It was actually at the same time of Jehovah Witness and Mormonism. Uh, those groups of people who thought that they have very private, secret insights into the biblical text, and they are the only ones who have the right interpretation. And I think this point also came as a reaction to scientism, which came into the biblical interpretation and biblical studies. So the reaction was very radical in uh, European and North American uh, Christianity. Of course, John Nelson Darby took his teaching to the United States in particular, and he found actually uh, that his teaching was received very well, especially by someone like Schofield, who did uh, the notes on the biblical text. Uh, Schofield, who once believed that anyone adds a letter into the Bible should be vanished, you know, he adds footnotes to the biblical text. And this text is still very influential in the Christian church in the US, especially among evangelicals and uh, charismatic Christianity. In 1948, this all historical and ideological background um, created the motive for a Christian to support the, let's say, European Jewish uh, immigration to Palestine and later the British Empire actually supplied them with the, with, um, the firearms, with the weapons to commit mass parts against Palestinians, the indigenous people of Palestine and occupy most of the land until, uh, let's say, 1947, when the partition plan uh, was um, uh, published or was um, approved by the United Nations to, to part the land between the indigenous Palestinians and the new immigrants. Uh, unequally, unfairly, uh, of course, uh, when it comes even to the numbers and percentage. There's a lot of paths I guess we can take here. I, I wonder if we could back up a little bit and if you could talk a bit more about the kind of beginnings of Jewish Zionism of people uh, moving to uh, Palestine before 1948 and what were some of the rationales and kind of excitement around that? An excellent question, Logan. Thank you so much. Uh, the Jewish immigration to Palestine started in the 1800s with very few thousands uh, coming and living in a uh, certain area in what was known as Palestine under the Ottoman Empire, uh, which Palestine was un under the Ottoman Empire for about 500 years, by the way. So Palestine never experienced uh, liberation from maybe uh, 3,000 years ago. So keep this in mind. It's a constant history of colonialism and occupation. But in the 1800s, we see a flood of of new immigrants, Jewish immigrants to Palestine. They coexisted with Palestinians. And until actually 1987, uh, the Zionist movement made a plan, a solid plan that they decided on Palestine as a homeland to the Jewish people and started promoting Jewish immigration to Palestine. But I'll go a little even um, further back in history, Palestine wasn't the first proposed country for the Jewish immigration. Uh, countries in, in Africa were proposed, uh, Argentina and Latin America was proposed. Um, but later, for someone like uh, 
Theodor Herzl, and after actually uh, multiple advice by Christian Zionists, that Palestine would, would make more sense to many Jews to immigrate to as their ancestry homeland. And keep in mind that those Jews, they don't have anything in relation to the land. Uh, one of the issues in, I think globally, it's not only in, in uh, the West, that people, when they read the Old Testament, they see Israel and they think of Israel today. And they think that, oh, okay, those people actually lived their country 2000 years and just returned. And that's not the truth. The truth that this country, the indigenous people of this country, Jews, Christians, Byzantine Christians, for example, uh, just to, the majority were Byzantine Christians, uh, Oriental Orthodox uh, in their uh, tradition. And they were a mixture of different cultures. You know, Palestine on the crossroad from Africa to Asia and Europe, they have all these uh, commercial routes going through and people uh, mingling with Palestinians and different cultures and uh, subcultures uh, became like uh, prominent in, in Palestine. So Palestinian Christians and Jews, they, they converted forth and back. Like some Christians converted back to Judaism and some Jews converted to uh, Christianity. And when the Arabs came, uh, not the Arabs, when the Muslims came, uh, there were Christian Arabs before Islam. And that's one of the huge mistakes that in the West that there were the Christian, Arab Christianity started with Islam. No, Arab Christianity actually began from the birth of the church. Um, but to keep in mind that when Islam came to Palestine in the seventh century, some Jews and Christians converted to Islam. And they remained in this land. So the indigenous people of this land, they've been here for thousands of years. They didn't immigrate. Uh, of course, later, we see many ways of, of immigration, but if we're talking about the indigenous people. Uh, while the new immigrants are actually converts, uh, Jewish converts in Europe. Uh, and, and you can read more about the history of, of uh, Judaism in Europe. Um, while the indigenous people remained. So, so thinking, thinking post-1948, post-World War II, like what was the ideological shift that, that we saw in kind of the Zionist movement? And could you give context to that, I think, to help kind of bridge some of the development that's happened over the years? Thank you, Daniel. Uh, before getting into 1948, I think it's very important to go to before 1948. As you said, World War II. Uh, during World War II, we all know what happened exactly uh, with the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and uh, the horrific experience of uh, 6 million Jews in, in Germany and uh, East Europe, which of course um, no uh, sane human person could imagine the atrocities committed against uh, the Jews in, in, in Europe. And no Palestinians actually agree, you know, on, on what happened. And that's, I think, confusing for many people. So, in fact, when new immigrants came and fled from Europe to Palestine, the Palestinians were very sympathetic towards them. Many gave the pieces of land for the new Jewish immigrants to plant and, and live out of. 
So it was actually kind of a safe haven for many Jewish families to spread out of Europe. However, you had those that came with the Zionist ideology and wanted to take over the whole land. And you can read a book by uh, Elan Pepe. He's a, an Israeli historian. He wrote uh, one of his uh, most well-known books is The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And he talks about the history, the background, very insightfully, uh, how the Zionists, in fact, didn't want to share the land with Palestinians or actually take a small part of the land for them. They wanted the whole land from the beginning. We're talking about the 1920s and even earlier than that. So in the 1945, after the end of World War II, you see a huge influx of Jewish immigration to Palestine. In fact, the number of, of the Jewish immigrants to Palestine uh, tripled in, in a few months. And what happened? The British found themselves in the trouble. You know, they helped the Jewish immigrants to come to Palestine. You know, they helped the Zionist ideology and the Zionist militia actually to take over uh, large chunks of land in Palestine. And now we have the Palestinians, what the British can do to the Palestinians who were under the British mandate from 1916. 1916, after World War II and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So the British started, uh, let's say, looking for an exit from this trouble. And they went to the United Nations. And in the United Nations, the Palestinian uh, land was, of course, uh, divided into two groups of people. Palestinians were proposed to take 43%. Uh, and the uh, Zionists will take um, around 52%. So you are giving the indigenous people, the majority of the people in the land, the minority of the piece of, of that land. After that, of course, we know that the Arabs and Palestinians didn't approve the partition plan. And it was unjust for the Palestinians. Let's just be frankly clear about it here. So the Zionist militia and the Western Empire stood with the Zionists and decided, okay, let's implant the plan on the ground. And we see in 1947 to 1949, the Zionist militia sweeped over the whole Palestinian land, uh, of course, um, excluding the West Bank and Gaza, exiling more than 800,000 Palestinians, indigenous Palestinians, including 50,000 Christians, destroying more than 531 villages and towns. And of course, uh, didn't allow the refugees to return to their homeland. I'll give you a personal story. My grandmother, her name is Jamila, which means beautiful. Uh, she was 10 years old when the Zionist militia uh, started like in 1948, attacking more directly Palestinian cities. Uh, she grew up in Jaffa to a Christian Orthodox family. She went to a Catholic school. And one day, her mother knew about the, Israel, the Zionists attacking Palestinian villages and committing uh, genocide, especially in Deir Yassin. It's a, um, 
a village near Jerusalem, and Jaffa and Jerusalem only like 40 minutes to drive away. So when the news arrived to Jaffa, many of the families started to fleeing to, fleeing to a safer place, hoping that this war will end in one week and they can return home. So my grandmother fled with her stepmother and her younger brother and older brother to Gaza because she had relatives in Gaza. And since then, she has never been allowed to return to her hometown. Since then, she's a refugee. She moved to the US a couple of, uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, actually, she's a neighbor of, she, she lives in Los Angeles um, with my uncle who got married to a Jewish gal and they have together three children. And the three children, because of their mother religious background, they can apply to Jewish immigration to Palestine, while their grandmother, who's indigenous Palestinian, cannot go home. And believe me, my grandmother now is 84 years old and started recently experiencing dementia. Her only dream, her only dream is to visit her hometown. So that's what happened in 1948. We are talking about 800,000 refugees, worker refugees. And of course, the number grew to about 6.6 million living in some countries that even doesn't recognize them and doesn't grant them um, any rights, rights even to work any rights to go to their public schools. They only have to go to the UNRWA, the United Nations Commission for Refugees. Um, and they can be served medically only through the United Nations uh, Commission for Refugees. So imagine that you have 6.6 .6 million living in diaspora and they are not allowed to come. Of course, in addition to uh, about maybe 2 million who live in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, could you say more, uh, just because you, you mentioned it, just for our listeners, about uh, the Aliyah program and why uh, people with Jewish mothers are able to, uh, or Jewish heritage, are able to um, uh, move and uh, immigrate to Israel, Israel-Palestine? Wonderful. I think it's something that needs to be clarified very well, and I hope I, I can do this. Uh, the Aliyah program is an Israeli invented system that allows any uh, person who claims to be Jewish or from a Jewish descent and has only a single paper that you need, sent by a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, that says that you are uh, from a, a mother, a Jewish mother or a Jewish father, and uh, you are a member of um, a Jewish denomination. That's the only paper you need in order to be granted Aliyah. And what's Aliyah? Aliyah allows any person that has this paper to come to Palestine as an immigrant and become a citizen of the uh, colonial state of Israel and granted all the rights of the uh, national Israels and, and Israelis. And by the way, uh, Logan, not all the people who claim to be Jews and have that paper are actually Jews. 
And you have many Christian, Orthodox Christian Russians coming and just claiming that they are Jews. So six days a week, they live as Christians. And one day they claim to be Jews in order just to stay in, in um, or actually also the other way around. You know, living as a Jew for six days and on Sunday going to church and hoping that no one sees them. And you have actually uh, African immigrants from Ethiopia, from uh, Southern Sudan, who want a better living and they can like find it here and they can serve uh, in the Israeli or um, So if you come to Bethlehem or the West Bank, most of the soldiers you will see on the most difficult checkpoints for Palestinians are from African descent or Africans because they come as an immigrant they, as immigrants and they are willing to volunteer in the Israeli army for two years in order to prove their allegiance to the Israeli government. In comparison, that you have around 6.6 .6 million Palestinians who belong to this land, who have thousands of years of history in this land, cannot even visit their uh, hometown. Let me give you an example. I told you about Jamila, my grandmother. Her house still exists in, in Jaffa. And my uncle has an Israeli citizenship. He's married to an Israeli uh, citizen. Um, and that, that's not the case anymore. It was in the past that Palestinians could be granted an Israeli citizenship if they are married to an Israeli gal. Um, so one day he decided to, his, to take his grandson to show him his mother's house. And you know what happened? The settlers called the police on him. Because for Palestinian, even remembering is a crime. So in comparison, you have a, a Christian Zionist or a Jewish Zionist um, from Georgia who doesn't have any connection to this land, claiming to be Jews, and comes over to Palestine, lives in an illegal settlement stolen from uh, Palestinian families, and uh, maybe your audience Christians uh, and many of that land are Christian uh, Christian family ownership, Christian families ownership. And they build settlements. So they steal the land and they steal the rights of the people on this land, not only actually the land, but even the water, all the natural resources we have in this land. And of course, in addition, the oppression that comes with the colonialism. Wow, there's a lot to chew on there. Thinking about the Nakba, what happened in 1948 and with the, the refugees taking with them their keys because they thought that they would come home um, after only a week or two. But it's been, what, 75, 76 years now? Too yeah. long. Um, what does remembering look like on a very practical basis in Gaza, in the West Bank, in these refugee camps? Can you just describe a little bit about what they, how, how can you just describe a little bit about how they live, what's their day-to-day, -day, what, what is, what are living conditions like for them, and um, is being a refugee something um, they choose? Is this something that has happened to them? Is this something that they can even change? Well, it reminded me, I was watching um, the new Netflix series, Mo, uh, and in one of uh, the episodes, his mother tells him that we Palestinians, we carry on. 
Uh, that's something that's well known for Palestinians. We are resilient people. We keep remembering, we keep fighting, and we keep hoping. Uh, so when those families took their keys, actually they passed those keys to the new generation. Uh, if I take you to any refugee camp in Palestine or in any place all over the globe, and you tell a Palestinian refugee, from where are you originally, they will tell you exactly with which village. Although they are away from that country for, or their village for 74 years, they still remember it. Um, although many of the refugees who live in, in the West Bank and Gaza and um, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, to be honest, they don't have fair treatment uh, internationally and uh, even uh, at a local level, they still carry on uh, because uh, they believe one day uh, God will interfere and will change the, and turn the history around and they will go back to their home. And uh, as we were talking, John, about the New Testament and believe the ground of the New Testament, the many Jews who lived in Palestine, Palestinian Jews, they live with this expectation. God will intervene in our history and it will bring what's unjust to justice. So that's what keeps Palestinian moving on. And uh, Brandon, when you were here, you could see in many Palestinian houses, they have a stone. And the stone states that this house, this land belongs to God. God has all the ownership. So because Palestinians believe that God owns the land and God has the ownership of what have on this land, they believe that God will come through and it will bring justice. This faith, which becomes practically hope. Uh, I like um, what Mitri Rahib, uh, a very well-known Palestinian, a brilliant Palestinian theologian and historian, he once says that faith is hope in action. And that's what Palestinians, they have faith and faith is translated into action through hope. One of the things that's, you know, obviously animating this, as we touched on in the beginning, is a particular interpretation of biblical prophecy, right? And I've recently been doing a lot of research on wine, especially wine in the Bible, and uh, I've been looking into, you know, Israeli wines and different things, and I, I found this one winery uh, actually in the West Bank called uh, Pisagot, and I, I watched this interesting documentary. Is actually published by this um, charismatic group. And the guy who was uh, on tour of, of this winery, he kept, he kept bringing up Amos uh, 9 and he kept talking about, look, you know, you're back in your land and you're producing all of this wine. This is the fulfillment of prophecy and all of this. And it's just a, a, a small glimpse into that mindset, right? I mean, of course, I, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, even if, even if that, that biblical prophecy is, is meant to be uh, uh, fulfilled uh, in, that, in that land, I would anticipate it being in either the millennium or the new creation, not, you know, just this dude's winery, you know? So, um, but I'm just curious if you could speak uh, more to that, that biblical tension that probably a lot of people feel. I mean, on the one hand, they're probably inundated by certain political voices that are telling them that they should, you know, view the conflict in a particular way. But there, a lot of people also struggle with that biblical interpretation piece where, you know, they, they just think, well, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is what, you know, God is, uh, God is doing. Can you, can you speak a little bit more to that and, and that tension that probably some uh, people feel about this? An excellent question, John, and I think it takes more than an episode to, to respond to this. 
because we can talk about the history of uh, biblical interpretation and literalism and in, in interpretation in the evangelical church in the US and Europe, uh, generally speaking, right? How the Bible is to be interpreted literally. You know, when it says Jerusalem, it means Jerusalem. When it says Israel, it means Israel. And this kind of interpretation actually disregards and dismisses that many of those words sometimes were used as an uh, analogy of something, right? Um, they didn't mean literally um, to be interpreted, you know? Uh, and unfortunately, it seems that this tradition of literal, literal interpretation seems to keep continue uh, running through uh, in the last 200 years. It's not something that the church fathers agreed on. We know that there were different schools of interpretation, but it was, weren't similar to what we have today. And the major issue is confusing, as I stated earlier, confusing Israel today, the colonial state, with Israel of the Old Testament. And what intrigues me, actually, as, as a Christian, as a, a theologian, is when Christians read the Bible and the Old Testament with disregard to the fulfillment of Jesus, of the old promises in the Old Testament. I can't count many times when Paul talks about Jesus as the son of Abraham, right? Um, he talks about Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to Abraham. I actually ask myself how actually Christians don't read the book of Hebrews or how they read the book of Hebrews. So it's very clear that the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the, is the uh, ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is actually the great high priest, greater than Aaron, right? And all of these prophecies that actually were fulfilled in Jesus, we are not to be attached to a certain piece of land. I don't think to reinterpret, reinterpret what land meant in that section. Because most of Christians in the West, they think of, of uh, Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3, when God gives his first promise to Abraham, you know, they think of it as unconditional promise. Well, in fact, theologians, uh, scholars know very well it's a conditional. Because the Hebrews had the condition to worship Yahweh alone and to live justly in this land and to treat themselves and their neighbors peacefully and kindly, which they didn't do throughout history, throughout the ancient history, just to be clear. And we can see the fulfillment found itself in, in Jesus. So when I meet with groups of people who still adhere to such an interpretation, I challenge them, I invite them to read Palestinian theology. Uh, Palestinian and Palestinian theologians wrote really um, excellent, solid books that are uh, grounded in the Bible, centered around Jesus, the person of Christ, and entered toward the kingdom of God. You know, and I think these three elements are very critical for us as Palestinians and as Christians in general. And one of them uh, is written by um, a friend of mine and academic dean of Bethlehem Bible College. It's from the land from Eden to the renewed earth. This is a biblical theology of the land and of the promised land. 
And I actually promise anyone who reads this book will be inspired and will be transformed. Um, so I'm not uh, actually, I'm not benefiting of this book, so it's not a kind of commercial promotion, but theologically it will enrich someone's life because then you think that the land is actually, it's not the only thing that Palestinians are fighting for. As Palestinian Christians, we are not fighting because of the land. We are, we are fighting for justice in this land. And there's a huge difference uh, between the two. I wondered if you could share a, a bit more about your own story um, as you've been growing up, what, what life has been like for you, how have you been challenged uh, and perhaps frustrated uh, by mm -hmm. this occupation? Thank you. Um, my grandmother's story, it's a story of thousands and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and keeps running through uh, our lives, you know, as second and third generation. I grew up um, in Gaza Strip during the first Intifada, the first Palestinian uprising, civil uprising against the military uh, settler colonialism of Palestine. And I, I can recall many events where my family and I, we experienced firsthand uh, the atrocities and um, the crimes of the Israeli military against the Palestinian people. I can remember one inspiring event. Um, they always, I always go back to. Um, one day, I was around maybe uh, seven years old. And the Israeli army broke into our house, an Israeli unit broke into our house and they turned it upside down. They were looking for maybe for something or someone uh, in the neighborhood. And while my grandmother back then, her name is Naima, which means the grace, was baking homemade bread. And while the soldiers were uh, withdrawing from the house, she handed one piece of bread, one loaf of bread, to one of the soldiers and told him, feed your friends. The breaking into Palestinian house is something normal that we get to live with here in Palestine. That's the normal of our reality. When you hear about the Israeli unit came into Bethlehem, Beit Sahur, where I live, uh, any Palestinian town, uh, they broke into houses, they destroyed houses, they arrested people. That's our daily routine. Every single day, every single morning, we learn about a new person or people were detained or murdered by the Israeli uh, military. That's not all. Um, many, many think of Palestinians as a group of people who have all the freedom and they can move freely. And the Israelis are very nice with them. They keep them, uh, they, keep, uh, they keep it to themselves. They don't turn to Palestinians, but Palestinians are the aggressors. And that's not the truth. Palestinians live in an occupied territory in the West Bank and Gaza, you know? Um, and even in those occupied territories, Palestinians, are still under fully control of the occupation. Some people make the joke that Palestinians live in an open prison. And I always tell them, you are wrong. We are actually living in a closed prison because the Israelis control our land, our borders, our airspace, our underground resources. Uh, they control our movement. 
they control our electricity, they control our water, they control uh, our internet. Palestine just got the 3G service only, uh, I think, four or five years ago. And we are still in 3G, by the way, because the Israelis don't, doesn't allow Palestinian companies to uh, develop their frequency to 4G. That's just a small example, you know. Um, as a Palestinian, I live inside a separation wall that Israel constructed, uh, uh, started constructing, in fact, uh, since 2003, about 20 years ago. This wall goes around the Palestinian uh, West Bank. Uh, it's about one, uh, 441 miles long, 760 kilometers, and it's still in the progress. They still are building that uh, wall, which separates the Palestinians from the Israeli territory. So Palestinians actually cannot move from a, uh, like a place to another. Uh, for example, if you want to, to go to Jerusalem, you don't only go to Jerusalem and the uh, checkpoint, uh, military checkpoint will see your ID. No, you have to cross literally through the wall to uh, an airport-like checkpoint in order to, to have the pass. And you need a very special permission to do this. So we are not even allowed to move freely. We don't have our own airport. People cannot go and harvest their olive growth. Imagine that. Israelis need to give them permission in order to go and harvest your own trees in, in certain areas. So Palestinians live under complete uh, uh, Israeli uh, military and uh, settler colonialism. Uh, many hilltops in the West Bank are in fact occupied by settlers, Israeli settlers. The West Bank was supposed, was supposed to be the future of a Palestinian state, assuming has more than 600,000 Israeli settlers. We don't have our own highways and roads that connect between Palestinian cities and towns and villages. If you want to go from a village to another or from a city to another, you have to go through an Israeli checkpoint and an Israeli highway. For example, you know, as someone who lives overseas, um, in order to travel like from the city, on a highway that is maybe 10 miles away, that's like 15 kilometers away, might take you like 20, 30 minutes. But for us Palestinians, sometimes that might take four and five hours because you have to go through military checkpoints. And even some days you have Israeli soldiers who are just mad for no reason. And they pour their uh, bitterness and their anger on Palestinians, so they close the checkpoint and let the Palestinians wait. And Palestinians, there are Palestinians who died on those checkpoints waiting for the Israeli army to give them access. Uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, a Palestinian uh, young girl passed away by herself uh, at the hospital. Um, of course, she, she, she passed away of cancer without having her family around her, around her because the Israelis didn't, get, didn't give them permission. So that young girl, who's I think younger than 10 years old, passed away without having her mother or her father next to her because the Israelis didn't allow. A pregnant woman who died at a checkpoint, they didn't get 
to the hospital to deliver their baby. And I can tell you countless stories of how Palestinians have endured uh, those kind of inflicted uh, terrible crimes against them. And then I think that that's the issue. We get the plane. And, you know, I moved to the West Bank in 2007, but I still have my family lives in Gaza. And the story of Gaza is even uh, more uh, horrifying one. When you actually blockading 2 million people in a small piece of land that is no larger than 140 square uh, miles, you know, and give them limited power four hours a day, you give them a very limited water, 95, 95% of their water is undrinkable. Imagine that. They have more than 50% unemployment rate. And then you are expecting of them to just to, to handle it and suck it up and live it, right? Um, and my family has been living through this for the last 16 years. Uh, imagine my mother has to, to, to live according to the Israeli schedule, how they, they will connect electricity to your house four hours a day. Imagine that you have to live with the whole idea that you have um, Israeli F-16 or military flights scanning Gaza 24-7. And you can hear its noise all day long. Um, can even that you have kids who never experienced a peaceful day, have nieces and cousins and nieces, nephews and younger cousins who never experienced a peaceful day. A couple of, of months ago, Israel committed an aggression against, against Gaza. And my niece was 10 years old. She didn't eat for three days because she was traumatized. She had high anxiety. Well, the Israelis using their F-16, F-35, attacking uh, Gaza, who has only locally made rockets that, in fact, doesn't or didn't, in fact, cause any serious harm in the Israeli cities and towns near the borders or inflicted any physical harm on Israeli citizens. So that's what we live with every single day. Every single day that I have to check the news before I go to work, I have to check the news every couple of hours to make sure that the country is safe, there's no attack. No, you have to go to work and see the wall and the Israeli soldiers watching all over you all the time. You know, and sometimes pissing, you know, at you. Uh, I think, friend, and we had tour around the trip and you had even soldiers pissing and like urinating in their bottles and they throw it at Palestinians uh, on the street or in Palestinian cemeteries. So you have to live with that and endure it and then you be blamed to be the aggressors. So we live the trauma on two sides with the occupation and later to be uh, pronounced and to be uh, accused of aggression. Yusuf, you you shared about the resilient nature of of Palestinians, and I really would love to get your perspective to the to the ability of your knowledge of 
Like, how do you see that resilience in relationship to what you see in terms of suffering in the history of Westerners? Uh, and like, if there was any type of wisdom that you would give to us, particularly I think as Western Christians, in light of some of the persecution that we either perceivably have experienced or uh, are very explicitly have experienced, uh, what wisdom would you give in terms of the resilience that you've seen as touching points for us to glean from? Um, because there's so much history uh, that you have embodied uh, and people have embodied in ways that I think the church should look towards uh, as being a little bit more grounded and rooted in when we think about suffering and when we think about resilience and when we think about um, our own historical tie uh, to, to Israel. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, I think there are two or actually more many uh, layers we can talk about here, right? Uh, we talk about the shared suffering of all oppressed people around the globe uh, for um, religious reasons, for racial reasons, for economic, class, gender, uh, you can name it. I think what keeps Palestinian hopeful and resilient, and I think the world can learn from that we keep carrying on and we keep fighting. And that's not something that we rely on own power to do, but Palestinian Christians, Muslims, and even the Jews who stand with Palestine, their faith is a very uh, important and significant part of their interior uh, motif, like their heart willingness to keep carrying on. Uh, as I stated earlier, Palestinians believe that God owns the land and they believe that God will come through. And seeing God, even in times that it seems that God is not listening and God is not interfering in this conflict, you know, or in this um, occupation, this injustice, injustice um, what keeps us running? And I think you're resilient will it bring people closer to you? Uh, a few years ago, uh, I think Israel was controlling the media platforms, you know, promoting certain narratives and rhetoric to the whole globe. Um, that's why I feel like sorry for Westerners because they have only certain outlets to, to get their news. However, in this new generation, media, the revolution, uh, we see more people are aware about what's happening here. And I think they are inspired by the resilience of the Palestinian people, and they wanted to learn more about it. And I think the resilience uh, of Palestinians, the resilience of uh, Asian Americans uh, in the last uh, uh, couple of years uh, with the racism, the resilience of African Americans and uh, Black people, has inspired many nations around the globe to start learning more. So don't wait for people to be sympathetic with you. You fight and people will get along because truth will be revealed sooner or later and justice will be served um, because we believe that God is just and God will, will bring us through it all. So could you also speak a little bit about some of the recent happenings in Gaza and the West Bank? Um, I think particularly of Shabin uh, Abu Akleh. 
but there are other uh, recent events as well, which you have touched on, but I think uh, there's more that you might have to say on these issues. Thank you, Logan. Uh, the question about Gaza in particular uh, needs to be addressed properly. And I think many people missed um, a lot of information and history when it comes to Gaza. Uh, so let's go back to around the 2000 with the second Palestinian civil uprising against the Israeli colonialism and the Israeli uh, military occupation. Around that time, uh, Israel invaded most of the West Bank and of course, uh, uh, of course had uh, also operations, many operations in Gaza. But one of the operations that uh, stands out a lot is 2003 when Yasser Arafat was who's the first president of the Palestinian Authority in his um, uh, residency uh, or uh, residence place in Ramallah, he was in fact besieged by the Israeli military for uh, a number of weeks and later he passed away um, or even assassinated still uh, doing investigations about it. But after that event, the European Union, the US, the United Nations asked the Palestinian Authority to conduct an election. And that election took place in 2005. And in that election, you had two major parties. One is the PA, or actually not the PA. To be clear, it's Fatah. And the second is Hamas. Fatah was in power since 1994, especially after signing Oslo agreements with the Israelis, which promised to give the Palestinians their independence within 10 years or so. And Fatah failed to get Israel committed to that peace agreement for 15 years. So Palestinians were fed up with Fatah still hoping in Israel to arrive to peace. You know, uh, people were um, sick of uh, the corruption that is like was in the PA and Fatah. And Hamas came as the party that promised reformation. So people in a um, democratic election in 2005 under the observation of the United Nations, the EU and the US, they voted for Hamas, hoping for reformation. What happened next for practicing democracy? We were collectively punished by the international community. Uh, what happened? You know, of course, there is a political game. The PA wants to keep controlling the land and the government, you know made obstacles or uh, obstacles for Hamas to uh, take as voted by people, take the majority in the parliament and the power. So a conflict erupted between Hamas and Fatah. Fatah and the PA took the West Bank, you know, and they are still under uh, controlling the West Bank while Hamas controls Gaza. And since 2005-2006, Gaza has been under 100% blocked by the Israeli military.
and I mean it literally, like even in sea, even on air, it's completely closed. Uh, Israelis have to approve any movement in and out of Gaza. So you had you have two million people live in a small piece of land, as I stated earlier, about 141 square miles, uh, 360 square kilometers, the highest density in the world. You give them the minimum of the minimum. Uh, it's not livable for human beings. And the Israelis are expecting from them to treat them peacefully. And if you just do a survey or a study over the last 16 years, when Gaza shot its rocks um, on Israeli cities and Israeli towns, you will notice that it was around the time that Israeli uh, strengthened the locket around Gaza and didn't allow necessities to enter into Gaza. So it's always this kind of Israel closes on Gaza even a little more, and people react by violence, violence, and I'm not here endorsing violence, but just thinking about the survival mode of people who live in Gaza, and Israel overreacts by destructive military uh, operation that kills hundreds of people, destroys uh, huge buildings and uh, landmarks in Gaza and streets, also erases families from the civil record. Uh, two years ago, the operation, the Israeli operation in Gaza, erased several families from the civil record. Can you imagine that? Whole families were killed. What happened in Gaza about a couple of weeks ago, or maybe two months ago, that Israel has been trying to get Gaza reactive and start the fire. However, Hamas and the other groups in Gaza, they kept their cool and they didn't react. So what Israel did, a week before its aggression, it asked the citizens on the borders near to Gaza to keep near uh, their houses and their refuge. And the later, Israel committed murder against Palestinians in Gaza. So Israel is the initiator of all the operations, all the crimes against Palestinian people from the beginning, from 1948, but now we are talking about Gaza. And the issue with Gaza still continues because Israel agreed on ceasefire with um, the military uh, groups in Gaza based on certain points. And until now, until today, Israel hasn't fulfilled any of those points. Can you imagine that? Any. So for people in Palestine and for people of Gaza, Israel has never proven itself to be uh, honest when it comes to peace, when it comes to uh, uh, giving Palestinians or delivering justice or arriving to justice with Palestinians. That's also... Um, what happened in the West Bank a couple of months ago with the murder of Shirin Abu Akhli was a Palestinian, had an American citizenship, uh, a long, uh, had a long history in journalism, was assassinated by an Israeli sniper in a very specific 
exposed uh, area in her neck, which, you know, the, the helmet that um, uh, first people wear and their whole um, clothes that make it very clear that they are pressed. However, that sniper was able to assassinate her. It wasn't a mistake. It was very clear. And I think Palestinian Authority um, also private investigation made it clear that it was uh, a premeditated assassination. And the reaction was like you saw Palestinian Christians and Muslims um, going out to to uh, to her funeral. Uh, her funeral is the longest in the Palestinian history, by the way. And in reaction, what the Israeli police did while they are taking her body to be uh, buried in the Christian um, cemetery in Jerusalem. From the hospital, the Israeli police attacked those who were waiting to take her. So even if you are dead in Palestine, still having, have no right or no honor by the Israeli police and military. And uh, I'm grateful that, I'm grateful for the sacrifice of Shireen, for her legacy, and also how it brought many people together and how it brought the Palestinian cause into attention, and, and especially in social media platforms where people get the news from real people also. Didn't they uh, try to say at first, they're like, well, maybe it was less, maybe a Palestinian uh, uh, shot her. We yeah, are and- always to blame for, uh, for nothing, you know? So, uh, and I think Israel is using uh, the Western media and the, the already pre-assumptions about us to reinforce the whole idea that we are the murderers. Um, and here, you know, in fact, one of the major issues, how the American government, you know, and most of the European government show themselves as the inheritance of the Judeo-Christian uh, ethics, you know, while we are the Arabs, uh, we are the terrorists and bloodthirsty, uh, we are the barbarians, the anti-Semites. While ourselves, we are Samites, you know, and we cannot be anti ourselves. And we are the indigenous people who are fighting for, for justice in our land. It strikes me as a, not a coincidence that rhetoric about the quote Judeo Christian tradition became quite loud uh, during in, in the sharp rises of Islamophobia in the West in the 90s and 2000s, right? So when you, when you don't like Jews, it's Christian ethics, but when you don't like uh, Muslims or Arabs, it becomes Judeo-Christian ethics, right? It's it's whatever you don't yeah. want. It's whatever you don't want. Uh, whatever you're signaling against. Uh, so, um, you know, Jews are a Western prop just to, um, you know, have this kind of indirect rhetoric against, or quite direct rhetoric against, you know, the fear of the East. And you are right. If you watch what happened during the war on Ukraine and the reaction to it. Um, uh, many of the reporters shamelessly say that Ukrainians lie because they are white, they are Christian, they are Europeans, they look like us, while Syrians, Yemenis, Palestinians, they don't look like us. They are not Christians, you know, uh, they are brown or uh, they are dark skinned. Um, you still see that narrative running and keep. Uh, reshaping the history 
uh, until today. And that's, that's heartbreaking, you know, for many Palestinians, especially for me as Palestinian Christian, to see that my life is not worthy compared to a white person, uh, someone from East or West Europe. And of course, also my neighbor, Muslim neighbor life. I believe Muslim, Christian, Jew, or people who don't believe in the three religions, any person, regardless of their religion, their skin color, their gender orientation, are created on God's image and deserve to be treated with dignity, honor, and respect. However, we are not treated with uh, likewise. You know, we've talked a lot about the past. We've talked a, a lot about the present. But what about the future? What are you hoping for? What If you could just leave our listeners with your vision for the future, what you are, uh, are, are desiring, what you're hoping for, what you're praying for, what, what is that? Thank you, Brandon. Um, first of all, let me clear a very uh, critical thing here. What Palestinians are experiencing nowadays is a crime of apartheid that has been already um, stated by very respected, well-respected uh, international organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, Israeli human rights organizations such as Bethlehem, um, and many uh, groups Palestinians, Kairos Palestine, and of course, other Christian denominations. My hope that this apartheid regime will ensue. I hope the segregation of Palestinians and Israelis, and Palestinians, Muslims, and Christians, and Jews will ensue, and the three groups of people will treat it equally, justly, and with full dignity. Um, that's my hope. Um, and I think the hopes of Palestinians is not responding with another injustice to the people who live and share the land with. But in fact, what we hope for is how we can coexist, live together, share the resources, enjoy the life in this land and experience this uh, freedom together. Uh, Kairos Palestine make it very clear, as a very important document, that in our pursuit for liberation, we are attempting to liberate even our oppressors. Now, Palestinians fight for liberation is not their, their own liberation only, but also for the liberation of the Israelis. So my hope for the future, that the downs, uh, the walls that separate us will come down. And Palestinians and Israelis um, will live together, that our kids will go to school together. They love and play and learn about each other's history with sincere respect uh, to one another. Um, all the hurt and pain that has been inflicted on the two groups of people for so long has to be healed. And we should not expect um, this from somewhere else. We can heal ourselves if we 
work seriously uh, together. And I think one of the issues that I've noticed all over the years that people want peace, but however, that peace without justice. They only want to live in peace, but they don't want to serve justice. And that's not, that will not produce genuine peace. Because in order for peace to happen, we need to do justice. And for justice to develop peace and to develop to genuine reconciliation between the two groups of people. And finally, I hope that people who listen to this uh, podcast and now learn about Palestinians and Palestinian Christians and what happened, what's happening in this land from me. That I will go and read more about it from different resources. They will watch different news outlets, try to listen to Palestinian voices uh, more. And I hope that the international interference uh, in the Palestinian cause will stop because things there are beneficiaries of this issue in Palestine and the settler colonialism. And when those beneficiaries will stop interfering, I think Palestinians and Israelis will have higher potential to come to reconciliation. Well, thank you, Yusuf. You've certainly given us, our listeners, a lot to think about, a lot to uh, do, a lot of books to read, a lot of practical steps they can take. And we really appreciate you sharing part of just part of your story just part of this uh important history and we thank you so much for being on our podcast thank you so much brandon and uh, logan daniel and john it was a, a really pleasure and honor to be with you thank you so much for this wonderful time and uh i hope people would learn more and be encouraged to learn more about palestine and palestinians 